following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. I want you to imagine with me for a second. I'm going to lay out a a scenario. Imagine that someone has spent a substantial amount of time living in heaven. Like, they're, they're so immersed in heaven. They've caught the vibe. Like, they just understand how heaven works, the dynamics, the, the economy of how people interact with each other, what it's like to interact with God in heaven, that they, that they get this. They've caught the vibe, and then they've been extracted from heaven and dropped right in the Quad Cities. Now, you can imagine it wouldn't take long for them to realize that you're not in heaven no more, all right? I think the potholes are kind of a dead giveaway because uh, there's no potholes in heaven, but, but just to see how people interact with each other, the visions, the hostility, right, the personal conflict, the, the, the sadness, the dissatisfaction, the hostility, the poverty, like go down the list of things that we can see in our city that aren't right, right? Things that we can say, okay, we're clearly not in heaven. And instead of giving in to this and sort of conforming to the patterns and the dynamics of this world, this person has heaven so embedded within them, so like part of their DNA, that rather than conforming to the world around them, they're able to continue living out the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. That they would get to lean into the glory of humanity instead of what what our world tends to do is, is objectify, to downplay the value of humanity, like we, we've got broken, like there's a broken sense of glory, but, but for this person to really see the potential of humanity, to embrace it and to love it, to, to live a joyful life, a life to the fullest. Now the question is, what would that look like? Like how, how would their attitudes and behaviors be changed by the fact, the realities, the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven in a way that causes them to live differently? Now this is essentially the picture that Jesus is painting in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been spending a a few months looking through Matthew chapter five. Actually, we're coming to the close of Matthew chapter five and moving into six and seven in the coming weeks. But this is the picture that Jesus is painting of a kingdom person navigating this broken world. And And he provides vivid detail for us that we don't have to imagine too much. I mean, there's a bit of our Christian imagination that gets to wander. But Jesus said, hey, here's the vision of this. Here's what this would look like. Here's how kingdom people navigate this broken world. Except, unlike that scenario I shared where this kingdom person is dropped into this world, Jesus is actually delivering kingdom people out of this world. 
So that's what Christ, the difference. Christians are embedded in this world and Jesus is delivering us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And the way that he does this is by upending our default worldview, our default understanding of how the world works by showing us the way that we're going about things in this world actually is quite unfulfilling. And while he's criticizing, in some ways, the way of the world, he's offering us a a new invitation to occupy the kingdom here and now. That we would learn from him how to live the good life, how to pursue human flourishing. And as Jesus is sort of like comparing things here, he's juxtaposing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of this world. And he does this by, by pitting a couple things against each other. He says, well, instead of, rec- uh, instead of anger and bitterness, which tends to be the default of the world, the kingdom of heaven operates by reconciliation. Instead of lust and adultery and exploitation and objectification, the kingdom of heaven operates by purity and validating personhood. In the kingdom of heaven, we see commitment, radical commitment, and not the ebbs and flows of what's convenient. We see honesty, not manipulation. We see grace, not retaliation. And today, Jesus is saying, here's how it's contrasted, and maybe this is the biggest way it's contrasts, that we have a love for our enemies, not hate for them. Now, when Jesus is comparing and contrasting the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of the world and how it works, the dynamics of each, each realm, Jesus isn't saying in order to get from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven, we don't just, it, it's not merely slight attitude adjustments. It, it's not just a little bit of behavior modification, just a little change here. What Jesus is pointing to is that it takes a radical reorientation of our inward self to live into the kingdom of heaven, here and now. Jesus is telling us, as a great philosopher, as a great teacher, as this mosaic figure, as he sits up on the hillside with people, his disciples who have come to hear from him and teach how life works best, he's telling us that there is a more fulfilling way of being in this world. And the way to access this, in fact, the only way to access this is to debunk yourself from the center of your life. The only way to access the kingdom of heaven is to debunk yourself from the center of your world, which tends to be our default. Not just tends to be, it is our default. See, the way that we occupy this world, it's on the economy of self. Self Self-fulfillment, I do what makes me happy, and I keep chasing until, until I feel like I finally hit that high, and guess what? It's like the law of diminishing returns. Or, or, or the, the economy of self-preservation. I'm going to act in a way that protects me and, and doesn't really give any regard for anybody else, but just sort of protects me, puts the walls up, keeps me nice and safe and, and comfortable. Self-protection, self-indulgence, like go down the list. All of these things that just cause us to have this inward view of ourselves because I'm at the center of my world. Now the irony of this, the irony of living with yourself at the center of your world is that it will lead to your undoing. By putting yourself at the center actually leads to a, a, 
a limited, debilitated experience of the world, not only will you break yourself, but you'll break other people. Instead, Jesus is offering us a new way of being in the world, that we would learn this new way, and the way of debunking ourselves from the center is to have God at the center of our world. Now, in order for this to happen, there has to be surrender and trust. We see the shift from this retaliation mindset of getting what's mine to grace and truth, of honor and humility. And really this, this juxtaposition that, that we're, Jesus is showing us, he, he's making this visible to us by this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say. He, he's not just, it's not just a little tweak, but a radical reorientation to this world, a new way of being in this, this world as kingdom people. And, and as we've gone through chapter five and we see this repeated phrase of Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what it's showing to us is this, this tendency that we have when self is at the center of our world to misapply and to hijack the word of God. So in each one of these scenarios, Jesus is saying, you've heard, and, and it sort of alludes to, if not quotes, an Old Testament law or, or directive that God had given his people. But he says, you've heard it said, but now I say. Now he's not changing the law. He's not even taking the law from this level of intensity to this level of intensity. What Jesus is showing is what's been intended all along, but how we've taken God's word and misconstrued it in a way that serves ourself rather than conforming to God. And so we see this throughout verses 21 through 44, 42 where the problem is application, right? It's a surface level application where God intends the law to get to the heart, the core of our being. We leave it at the, at, at the, the surface level. And so we say, okay, well, anger is okay as long as I don't murder anybody. Right? L- lust is fine as long as I don't commit adultery. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're just going to the surface with this, you're missing the whole point. Our, our view of the law is truncated in order to get what we want. Now in verse 43, there's a bit of a shift where a misapplication to just a complete hijacking of God's word. In verse 43, Jesus shows this. He, he says this, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now in Leviticus 19 and 18, this is the first time where we see the explicit command to love your neighbor. Now this is sort of embedded in in all of Israel's um, genetic code of being God's people. In fact, when Abraham was called out from this pagan world, God told him that I would bless you so that you would be a blessing to the nations. This is embedded, this is part of their DNA. So it, it makes sense when God says, you love your neighbors. But you can do a survey of the Old Testament, the New Testament, nowhere in scripture does it say, hate your enemies. Yet for some reason this is being taught. You love your neighbors, hate your enemies. Now listen, I know there's a little bit of nuance here. It's not completely black and white because there are times in Israel's history where God told, told people to reject pagan nations, godless nations, nations that would only lead them away from God rather than deep, leading them deeper into the arms of the Father. And so there is this sense where God has called his people to remain distinct, but while being distinct, they are to have love for their neighbor, but never hate. Now this is not because God's people, Israel, the Jews, didn't have enemies 
to love or to hate. They actually had, had plenty of enemies. There were a lot of people that had a severe disdain for Jewish people. And, and most of the times it was a socio-political reason why people didn't like them. Um, they were taking too much land, they, you know, all kinds of reasons. Their, their view of the, this one God that they, have, that they have access to the one God Right, and so people would look at them and had a disdain for them, and specifically in the first century, we see this disdain coming from the Roman Empire, right? The, the powers that be that kind of sweep in and, and are, are, they're taking control, political control of this nation state. And not only do we have the, the power of the Roman authorities coming in and sort of like putting their, their foot on the throat of, of the Jewish people, there are also Samaritans, which are sort of like, you know, long lost cousins um, that, that have different socio-political views where there's animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so they, they see this command to love your neighbor and, and the self, right? The, the, the engine of self, the, the engine that's, that d- desires self-protection generates this tribalism mentality that it's us versus them, right? They don't like us, so we don't like them. They're against us, so we're against them. And so the idea of loving your enemy to them, like people who have their foot on their throat, people who are, are out to see them, you know, dislodged from society, love my enemy, are you kidding me? That seems impossible. N- not only is it impossible, or, or maybe the, the reason why it's impossible is because the Romans and the Samaritans are downright unlovable. So then what do they do? They add to God's word to accommodate themselves. And we do the same. This isn't new, hasn't stopped, because what we tend to do when we come up, when we bristle against God's word, we bend God's word rather than allowing ourselves to be bent to it. So we say, myself, I'm the authority. I'm what's true and right, not God, not his word. I'm gonna bend God to accommodate me rather than bend myself, which by the way is broken and troubled to accommodate God's word. I'm gonna bend God's word instead of bending myself. And Jesus here comes, he he sees this tendency, because it's not just like a, a minority doctrine, like some, you know, maybe I'm gonna run somebody over here, like a flat earther in the church who insists that the world is flat, I don't, it's not a minority thought. This is a, a widespread teaching in the synagogues. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And Jesus comes to straighten things out. He says this in, in verse 43 through 44. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What? Come again? Like, Jesus, are you sure about this? Love my enemies? I got so many questions. Why? <laughs> First of all, why would I love my enemies? Who, who are you talking about? Are you sure these people are the ones I'm supposed to love? There's a shock value of what Jesus is saying, and I'm afraid that many of us who've grown up in the church have been exposed to this love your neighbors, you know, love your enemy, sort of language that we see from Jesus here, it's sort of, you know, we, we get acclimated to it in a way that loses a shock value. What Jesus is saying is profound. 
especially when you contextualize it in 2020. When it seems that we're, we're more divided than before, that there's more tribalism, maybe than ever before, I don't know for sure, but in my lifetime it certainly feels like it. Where there's more finger pointing and accusations being laid out. Jesus still says, love those who you wildly disagree with. Love your enemy. Now usually we view this when he says love your enemy sort of on a, on a macro level, like who are our ideological rivals? Who are our religious enemies? Who, who has a worldview that's completely different than ours that sort of we run opposed to each other? And if you stand for anything, you're gonna have somebody you disagree with, right? It requires, like, you take a stance, there's gonna be somebody who's opposed to you. So it's not like we can make it through our world, especially as Christians, with convictions that we have where we can like avoid having enemies by not taking a stance. The Christian life calls you to conviction. And so we view this on a macro level. Like it's us versus them. We disagree on this. We di- maybe society, politically, whatever it might be, how you run your household. We have these disagreements. And so we wage a war on our opponents, on our enemies. It's not a physical war, most of the time. Like 99% of the time, this is not a a physical war. It's more subtle than that. We we tend to lob insults and ridicule people, right? Say, oh, look, look at those idiots. What do they know? Dismiss them. Our, our worldviews are colliding, and we feel that tension, we feel that rub, but it's not just that we have macro enemies, right? P- people who have very different understanding of how the world works than us, but, but we also have these personal enemies, this nemesis, people that you see, people that you interact with that you're ready to box, right? They say this, they said it again, I'm gonna punch them in the throat, right? This sort of like angst that, that goes in with directed at specific individuals where we're just ready to dish it out. Now, it might be easy for you to identify these rivals that you have in your life, right? Po- personally, on, on the macro level, on the micro level, right? These people that you tend to run opposed to, these enemies of your life, right? The, the Batman-Joker relationship might be very clear. It's this coworker, this ex-friend, this ex-wife, if you're a Raiders fan, a Chiefs fans, right? These, these are the enemies. But for some of us, it's hard to identify who these enemies might be. I mean, aside from like the middle school, high school bullies that we encountered. I, I, to be honest, I, I did like an assessment, like who am I, who do I find myself completely opposed to? I, I don't really feel like there's that tension, that animosity but certainly that doesn't mean that I, d- I don't have that, right? It certainly doesn't mean that I escaped this reality of having some sort of enemies. This is the reality here. We don't have to be at a full out war in order to have an enemy. According to Ellie Weisel, the, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Right? I, think th- I think there's some truth to that. It, it's this indifferent attitude, a subtle apathy that we have for people, a subtle disregard because of certain personalities or because they've said something in the past or or slighted you in some way. Their sin, for some reason, is more intolerable than your sin. 
So, oh, that, that's a person I can't stand. I don't like them. And instead of pursuing war, what we do instead is we just dismiss them. We brush them off. Like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for you. You're a waste of my time. It's not a war of collision, but a war of avoidance, of indifference. Who, who is your enemy? Who is that person that you have a hard time loving? Now, unlike our culture that says, just blast them. Like, put them on blast, tell them they're idiots, move on, dismiss them, ignore them. Jesus says, love them. Now, this is the key, I would, I would say, according, if we look through the rest of the New Testament, this is the key, the most defining trait of a kingdom person. And it's, it's intentional that Jesus saves this for the last in this section of Matthew chapter five, that, that it would all be moving toward this apex of love for your enemy. We see love being the defining characteristic of, of Christian community. In John 13, Jesus says that they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love each other. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, faith, hope, and love remain. The greatest of these is love. All right, if I don't have love, I'm just a noisy symbol, crashing glang, gong, glang, gong. It all rides and falls on love. And this is the way that Christianity is set apart from the world. It's not that we just love those who are like us, like those people who share the same ideologies as us. But like God does, we love the undeserving. See, that's what, that's what he says here. See, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. See, God doesn't play favorites here. God gives to all. And if we want to be like God, if we want to imitate God, this is what it looks like for us to love. Now, one of the questions that Jesus proposes here, he's like, it's easy for you to love the people that are like you. It's easy for you to love your allies, the people who are already on your team. That's what he's getting at here in verses 46 through 47. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, this would have been very offensive for Jesus to take those people that he's teaching and say, look, you're no better than the Gentiles. <laughs> you're no better than the tax collectors. How offensive that would be. But the question here that's undergirding this is what do you have to gain? What gain is it to you? Well, the gain is in verse 45. That there's far more to be gained in loving your enemy because it makes you like your heavenly father so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. But why are we so reluctant to take Jesus up on this, what is to be gained? Like he's, he's telling us that there is gain in loving your enemies. Why do we cut the corners? Why do we like try to sidestep that? Why do we settle for a version of love that's like half-hearted at best? Because this, this version of love that Jesus is, is submitting to us is not this absence of animosity. 
right? It's not just like removing yourself from a relationship so that way you don't have that negative interaction. What Jesus is calling to us to is to be like pro-enemy. Like to be able to, to, to differentiate the enemy and what they're for. See, when we have this, this flat view of love, there's nothing to be gained. See, Jesus tells us love, real Christian love is more than just a restraint of hate, but it's actually a surplus of what's bubbling up from inside. It's like a love, a river of love that is so full that it can't help but spill over the banks, right? The river has this path at its blaze, right? Where it's supposed to go, that, that this path of least resistance, but here the river is so full that it bubbles up over the banks. This is what it looks like to love enemies. Not just that we withhold animosity, but we're for them, that we pray for them. That's what Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Now we take this, we say, okay, fine, Jesus. I'll pray for that bozo. You open up to the impeccatory Psalms, Psalm five. Cast them out, take vengeance, put them to shame. I'm praying for them. That's what you wanted, right? See, that's not the prayer that Jesus has in mind when he calls us to pray for those who persecute us. You can save those those prayers for Satan. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, the, the enemy isn't flesh and blood, right? That person you have a hard time getting along with, the problem isn't them. There's something going on underneath of this. And it might be going on in your heart and it might be going on in their heart. It's probably both. Rather, Jesus says, pray for them in such a positive way that their life would be upended in the best way possible. Romans 12, Paul says, bless and do not curse them. That we would advocate them in a positive, in a positive and actionable way. Not just in a way where like, yeah, I'm starting to think kindly of them now, but that your heart is actually so for them that if you have the opportunity to bless them in an actionable way, you would take that. It's like Steve Brule, kill him with kindness. I don't know if anybody, it's great. Kill him with kindness. Paul says, when you repay evil with good, Right? When you're persecuted and you turn around and you love that person instead of hating them in return, it's like heaping up burning coals on their head. See, this is God's strategy to overcome evil. Either they will recoil from the heat, like you touch a hot thing, you pull away. Right? If, oh, shoot. They either pull away or guess what? It's gonna consume them in flames. This is how God plans to overcome evil with good, to repay evil with goodness and kindness. After all, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Do you see this here? Enemy love wins allies. If you can love your enemy consistently, faithfully, you might just win over an ally. 
Now to love this kind of way is, is impossible. Jesus says, what reward is it? Well, it's like, well, this is, if you, if you talk like risk reward, cost reward, it seems like it's too costly. To love somebody in this way costs me too much. I'm left footing the bill. Well, they're like living life large. To live this way, to love your enemy is, is exhausting because it is contrary to your default way of being in the world. You might look at this and say, well, love my neighbor, that sounds too idyllic. There's no way. There's no way you could possibly love your, way, your, na- or your enemy. This is downright otherworldly. But Jesus says, to love your enemy is what's required to gain entry to the kingdom of heaven. See, at the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus is interacting with his disciples. He says, Jesus says, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes are the ones who are are trumpeting this, this message of hating your enemies. And Jesus says, if you want to gain access to the kingdom of heaven, you have to love your enemies. There's no way to sidestep this. There's no way to get around it. So then the question is, how? How can I possibly love my enemies? What would possibly enable that in my life? The only way to love your enemies, the only way to, to love like this is to first experience a love like this. You must experience Jesus' otherworldly, enemy-embracing love. See, the drop-in scenario that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, this is Jesus, people. Jesus was the one who sat in heaven that enjoyed the perfection of being with God in this unrestrained, unbroken sort of existence. And he willingly left heaven to come to this broken world with broken people like you and me. And he came and he was full of love, like from eternity past. And he came and he's like, I'm going to show this love to these people who have become blind to love. And Jesus comes and he pours out his love, but he does so knowing that there will be zero reciprocation. That these people that he's coming to love to pour his life out for are not going to return the favor at all. In fact, he was hated. His message of the kingdom, right, the displacement of self to put God at the center was rejected and reviled. And this isn't just first century people that brush, bristle up against this Jesus and his love. It's us. There is something about the sin that dwells in our hearts that makes us anti-God, resistant, enemies of God. Scripture calls us enemies of God. And when we see this enemy love that Jesus has for us and this calling that accompanies it to, to die to yourself and to live toward God, we feel threatened by it. And so we smack Jesus' outstretched arms away. Say, no thanks, I got it. But that doesn't stop him. No matter how many times you smack away Jesus' hands, 
they'll always go back to an outstretched position toward you. See, this is, this is the absurdity of the gospel, that while we were enemies of Jesus, while we were Jesus haters, he went and he died, not, not just like lived a good life, which he did, he lived a good life for us, but he died the death that we deserve to die on our behalf. Jesus comes and dies for the ungodly and undeserving. This is the reality here. In the church, there is not a single human who is deserving of Jesus' love. Can we agree with that? There's not a single person. None of us can say, oh Jesus, I'm on your team. Been there since day one. These chumps didn't know, but I knew. No, that's a false narrative. You were hostile toward God. And Jesus, I mean, you think about, Jesus could have said, have it your way. Like, that would have been the, the undoing of humanity. Jesus said, all right, have it your way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to heaven where it's nice. People actually like me here. Jesus didn't respond with apathy. Jesus came in the most zealous and passionate way so that he could be pro you and me. See, this is so much more. This message of the gospel is so much more than the common grace that we see in God giving rain to the godly and the ungodly or sunshine to the just and the unjust. See, what Jesus is doing here is is something far more profound. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us it's the love of Christ that shines into our dark hearts. Jesus floods us with a love that washes away all of our sin, that makes us clean. And it's this love that invigorates us. It gives us a new lease on life. It makes us alive in Christ. It it propels us toward the full life, which requires us to become God-oriented people, not self-oriented people. That we become Jesus-oriented people, not me-oriented. See, this is this is what it means here as we come to verse 48, where where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when when we read this, I think a lot of people are like, okay, this is why I don't believe in Christianity because it's such a far stretch. How could I possibly be perfect? In fact, we look at the church and say, ain't nobody perfect here. I might not know you that well, but I know you ain't perfect. How is this even plausible? Now, the problem with this is when we, when we look at the word perfect, we tend to think of perfect in, in terms of morality, like perfect morals, like I've done everything right. Now with Jesus, the kind of, the word perfect here is teleos, which means like trajectory, what you're facing, what you're pointing toward. Now Jesus is saying, be pointed, have the singular focus, the, the singular directive to your life would be Godward. That's what it means to be perfect, to be completed by the love of Christ in a way that displaces yourself and makes you oriented, reoriented toward God, that gives us a whole heart, that fills us with the love of Christ in such a way that, that saturates us like a sponge. Like We become so saturated in the love of Christ that we can't help but ooze it out no matter where you place us. We absorb and redistribute. This is the craziness of the gospel. Not only does Jesus love enemies, but Jesus takes people like us, he implants his love in us in such a way that this enemy love of Jesus now oozes from us. 
See, this is the only way that you can love your enemies is if you experience the love of Jesus that was directed toward his enemies. And when you experience that, it reorients you. You displace self, you put God at the center. And that is the key to a flourishing life. That is the key to the good life. There is no other way, there is no sidestep, there is no plan B, this is it. And Jesus has come to show us this. Not just by talking about this in sort of like philosophical, heady, you know, nebulous ideas, but, but fleshing it out. That Jesus is the one, when you look at, at Matthew chapter five, all that he's calling us to, to live into as his disciples, Jesus is the only one who can do it. And for people who are anti-God, resistant to God, <laughs> inconsistent, Jesus says, I've got you. My love, my grace is sufficient for you. And when you are oriented around the love of Christ, it changes you into this Christ follower. Like, you know the, the word Christian was initially used in, in the book of Acts to like mock those people who follow Jesus, like little Christs, little Jesuses, like who do they think they are, little, little chumps? What, what an honor to bear the name of Christ, to realize that the enemy love of God, the love of heaven has been implanted in us and it's by this that we can actually love others. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much that you have not only told us but shown us this enemy love. We ask that you would invigorate us in your love day in and day out, that you would Help us, God, by the power of your spirit to displace ourselves and put Christ at the center, that he would be our bedrock, that he would be the foundation, our refuge, the cornerstone. And as we are face to face with you, God, would you make us more like you? Would, would you transform us? Would you make us take on your image, your likeness, the way of being in this world that points to the reality of the kingdom of heaven even though we're stuck in this broken and futile world? And as we sit in the season of Advent, God, would you bestow upon us your love, the peace, joy, and the hope of Christ? We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.